Hello and welcome back to Off Campus History. I'm your host, Lewis Reedwood. Apologies for my microphone's audio quality today. I'm unexpectedly without my normal recording microphone and working with what I have on hand. I hope you'll bear with me because this is a really great interview. On today's podcast, we're talking about the 2015 film The Revenant. The movie stars Leonardo DiCaprio as Hugh Glass, a fur trader in the western United States in the early 1820s who goes on an epic quest for revenge. The movie saw significant financial and critical success. It grossed over 530 million U.S. dollars worldwide and was nominated for 12 Academy Awards, winning three of them. Today we dig into the movie's portrayal of the fur trade. Was the fur trade really as violent as it seems in the movie? Does the film accurately capture the relationships between different indigenous nations and European and American traders? How would the fur trade look different in other fur trading regions of the continent and in other periods of the fur trade? To answer all these questions and much more, I'm joined by Sam Darkson. Sam is a PhD candidate at McGill University and an expert in the history of the fur trade. His current research focuses on the history of the Northwest Company, a major fur trader in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. We've got a great interview for you today, so let's get into it. All right. I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Sam Dirksen. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Lewis. Thanks for having me. Now, in my project of bringing people onto this podcast, I like to tell the weird story of how I know all these different historians. So the reason I actually know you is because when I was a kid, you refed my basketball games. I played basketball with your younger brother. I feel like it's just a weird small town of historians who work in Canada. I think, yeah, it's one of the beauties of working as a historian in Canada, but also being from Saskatoon, both of us, and just kind of having all these little little connections. But I, I appreciate you reaching out. It's nice to reconnect, and I'm looking forward to our chat today. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your, your research area. You're a grad student at, at McGill University. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, PhD candidate at McGill, and I'm working on a project you know, that I think is very topical for what we're talking about today, mm-hmm. but maybe based a bit further north. So I'm working on kind of uh, re-examining the history of the Northwest Company and, yeah, trying to, I guess, really dig into how trade is operating at different points of their very vast trade network on the ground. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of that deals with, obviously, Northwest Company Indigenous trade in kind of present-day Ontario, Saskatchewan, and uh, Manitoba, and further west. So, Hopefully, I'll have some insight to provide today. Very cool. Yeah, that's a very fitting, very fitting topic for the episode. So, how did you get into studying the history of the fur trade? Oh, that's a good question. I think I think this will also come up a bit in our discussion today. But as for many of us who grew up in Western Canada, you know, these are some of the histories that we are taught growing up early on. My family uh, loved to travel across the country to historic sites and all that stuff. So, it kind of built just a, a romanticism for this. I guess, mythology of the fur trade, of these people going to the vast reaches of the continent and trading with indigenous people. And then just over my university studies, kind of getting really interested in how the intersection of indigenous and European economies actually operated. Mm-hmm. So it's been a journey, a journey from there, looking at the liquor trade in the middle Mississippi Valley in my master's and then on to the Northwest Company in the, in the PhD. Yeah, I have some people who listen to the podcast who are not from Canada. And I think people who are not from Canada may not realize how important the fur trade is to Canadian history and Canadian historical memory. It's, I feel like in terms of the long durée of Canadian history, kind of the defining feature in a lot of ways. It's like the, the, the main show where the fur trade is 
really, for a lot of parts of Canada, the main reason why European colonizers are interested in possessing the region or having a role in the region. And so a lot of our historic sites in Canada are old fur trade forts or things like that. Yeah, exactly. And then really kind of reinforced with Harold Ennis and some of these kind of defining works in Canadian history, the fur traders becomes integral to kind of how, you know, we talk about the nation of Canada forming hmm. in 1867. So it's hard to talk about the history of Canada, I guess, without the fur trade in some respects. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And this is just like my own silly comment that I feel like it's kind of fascinating and a little bizarre how important it is to Canadian history that a particular style of hat was popular in Europe, <laughs> you know, like the, the beaver hat is like such a, it's actually like such a defining economic feature of Canadian history. And I also think it's funny that, you know, one of these really important fur trade institutions in Canada, a defining economic powerhouse in the history of Canada, the Hudson's Bay Company, it's been around for 300 plus years. It's now a department store. You can, go there, you can go there and get your perfumes and upscale clothes and stuff. So, uh, you know, we still sort of like live with some of the remnants of the fur trade a little bit. And all their, um, you know, Hudson's Bay themed blankets and all these things that were at one point very important kind of indicators of fur trade culture are now just chic throws that you can put on your couch and pay an exorbitant amount of money for <laughs> yeah definitely i think it's a it's telling about how the fur trade is you know it is funny but it's it's also telling about how people kind of have a nostalgia for the fur trade in canada i guess like the the branding of the of the hbc merch yeah i have to admit you know it does get me on occasion i uh <laughs> you know with that connection to the fur trade history and uh, and all that but no it's still uh it's still around in our popular culture there's no doubt mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so Today we're talking about a movie not set in Canada, but about the fur trade, which is the 2015 film The Revenant. Let's briefly summarize the movie for people who haven't seen it or don't intend to see it. And I'll warn people, I have a couple of warnings for people. One is that this is going to be spoilers if you want to watch it. Stop listening now. Second warning, if you do want to watch it, be advised that this is a really violent and gory movie. It was hard to watch at certain points. You know, if you have like small children or something, I mean, you can see the rating of the movie, but you know, just be advised about that. So the movie starts out, it's, it's about a group of American fur traders who are in the Western United States, sort of today's North and South Dakota region in the 18, 1820s. And they're looking to take some furs back to back to their fort, but they're also trying to avoid the Arikara, who are the indigenous people in the region, and they're they're in Arikara land, and so they're trying to avoid getting in trouble with them for, for being in their territory. And the the opening sort of scene of the movie is, is a battle, essentially, between these traders and the Arikara, and they're sort of running away back to the fort. Once this battle's over and they're in the process of escaping... We're on the on the road back to the fort. Uh, one of the traders, the main character of the movie, Hugh Glass, he is out hunting for some food, and he's brutally mauled by a bear. And it's a long mauling scene. <laughs> so it looks like he's likely to die. His son, who is half Pawnee, is also 
with this fur trader group. And so he and his son, or he is really like slowing down the group. And so the leader of the group says, can I get a couple of men to like stay here with him and bury him when he eventually dies, presumably. And so the, the son stays uh, and a couple of the other men stay. But one of them clearly didn't like him very much to begin with. That's John Fitzgerald. And he's antsy about the Arikara in the region as well. And so essentially he decides and kind of obligates this other guy, this other trader who stayed behind, to leave Hugh Glass for dead. And in order to prevent the son from telling that they left him for dead, they, they murder Hugh Glass's son. Hugh Glass does not end up dying. He almost dies of his wounds, but he somehow survives. And basically the rest of the movie is like his quest for revenge on John Fitzgerald for betraying him and murdering his son. So he goes through all these like trials on the way back to Fort, Fort Kiowa, I think it is. You know, he, he's attacked by the Arikara. He, he has other adventures along the way, I guess you would say. Eventually he shows back up at the fort. It's revealed that he's still alive and he goes out and eventually murders John Fitzgerald. Or I guess he doesn't directly murder him, but allows him to be killed by the Arikara. That's kind of the very basic summary of the movie. I guess I should add, there's there's sort of a second plot that's going on in the background to this, which is the Arikara are, their leader is looking for his daughter. And that's sort of the driving force for why the fur traders are being pursued. It's eventually revealed that some French fur traders had taken his daughter captive and, and Hugh Glass eventually frees her from, from the French. So that's sort of like a, a layering to the plot. But let's talk a bit about the source material for the movie and what we know about the person Hugh Glass. Hugh Glass was a real person historically, but the story is not, it's an adaptation. I did a little bit of research online about this before we recorded, and what I've been able to find is that, you know, we don't actually know a whole lot factually about the person Hugh Glass. We, we have lots of old stories about Hugh Glass, but the earliest recorded version of his story was from a, a Philadelphia literary journal called The Portfolio in 1825. And I got to say, like, some of the story details are similar, right? And the, the main thing that's different is that his son doesn't make an appearance. There's, there's no son in this story. It's just a revenge story for being left for dead. But it's not clear that that story is accurate. It was probably embellished, if, and a lot of it is, is probably not true. This is probably just told because it was a good story. There's been lots of other versions of the Hugh Glass story, right? There was a um, 1915 epic poem called The Song of Hugh Glass, and there have been other films and novels based on his story, but we really don't know a whole, whole lot about what really happened. So what were your thoughts on this? Do you, do you have anything to add in terms of like what we know about the person Hugh Glass? Not, not a whole lot, I think, because it is, so, it is so uncertain. There's so many fragments. But I think it's interesting to note just that this story becomes part of the, the regional folklore kind of, mm-hmm. you know, into Pennsylvania, but also kind of through the Midwest uh, in, the, in the decades after this. So, you know, he kind of takes on this, Hugh Glass kind of takes on this 
Davy Crockett type persona for, for this region with this kind of epic story of surviving a bear attack and and revenge and, and, and all these different things. So, you know, he fits into maybe a, a wider series of stories um, of, a, of a similar type from the, from the States at this time. Mm-hmm, definitely. Especially in like the late 19th, early 20th century, there's a genre of story, the Western hero genre. And, you know, you see a lot of, especially for stories for boys, like a, a novels for boys and stuff, you see stories about... Davy Crockett, Daniel Boone, people like Hugh Glass who have this sort of rugged outdoorsman character of like, um, this is a problematic way to phrase it, but this is how they would have phrased it at the time, conquering the frontier. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where a lot of this mythology is maybe solidified and a big part of this culture of Western stories. Let's get into the violence in the film because I, I think that's one of the big themes of the movie. So as I mentioned earlier, the film is really violent. Even if we put aside this sort of specific revenge story about Hugh Glass trying to get revenge on John Fitzgerald, the relationships we see between the American fur traders, the French, the Arikara, the Pawnee, and others are very violent. And I wanted to ask you, so was the fur trade really as violent as it comes across in this movie? (laughs) Well, I think it's a good... It's a really uh, good question. It's an important question. It's something that I've really been contemplating a lot in my own work. I think the best or the best answer I have at this point of the question is it maybe wasn't as violent as it's depicted in the in the film, of course, but it certainly was violent or violence was a key component that was kind of ever present or, or could potentially kind of arise at any uh, at any moment in the fur trade. Hmm. So I think that's one interesting part about this event and in kind of in reading a few of the more recent historic accounts of this event based on the sources, the Revenant really does capture a particularly violent moment in this Arikara, Pawnee, American, French fur trade situation. And I don't know if you had a chance to look at any of these or, you know, to delve into that history at all for the, or in lead up to the podcast. But what I saw was that Essentially, what Elizabeth Fenn and some other historians are, are arguing about this, this moment is for, for decades before this, the Arikara were kind of a key middleman in the fur trade between nations further west and predominantly the French and some American traders trading out of St. Louis. And so around you know, the early 1820s, these traders start bypassing the Arikara and kind of going further inland without trading much at all with the, with the Arikara. And you know, maybe going through the the standard gift exchange or some of these ceremonial the ceremonialism of the fur trade, and and this is something that sparked this kind of this violence in an attempt to kind of recenter some of the trade on their own communities. Okay, so the movie is set during a really specific moment of violence in the fur trade, but perhaps that level of violence doesn't characterize. You know, the fur trade lasted hundreds of years across a very wide geography. So perhaps this level of violence doesn't characterize all of the fur trade. Yes, I think that's very fair to say. And also just, I mean, specifically, I guess what I'm talking about here is it doesn't characterize, you know, the Pawnee, Arikara participation in the fur trade. Mm -hmm. There are periods of violence, but certainly there are also times of peaceful exchange. And yeah, this is kind of a particular moment where this Arikara Pawnee 
trade with the Americans turns violent. But no, certainly the violence is not the only characteristic of the fur trade and, and actually predominantly it's defined by mutually beneficial collaboration or perhaps maybe not predominant, but also we have these key techniques or conventions that facilitate the exchange of furs for European European goods. So, you know, that includes conventions like gift giving, hospitality, intermarriage, all these things that help build trust between these groups and help kind of reinforce an ongoing and productive commercial exchange. Because of course, there's both both indigenous and European traders in these cases coveted the goods the other person had to offer. So in many cases, it's most beneficial to help facilitate those exchanges. Right. That makes sense. So why would you say, if, if more commonly these are sort of defined by mutually beneficial exchange, when and why did violence essentially, why did things break down and, and things become violent? As a, I realize it's very hard to say that like as a generalization, but is there a, is there a trend, would you say? Yeah, I think the way I've kind of conceptualized it is that there's a series of strategies that both or anyone participating in this exchange are trying to employ in order to further their agendas. So in some cases, depending on the circumstances, can be so diverse across the continent or or wherever you're kind of studying this, there's various potential outcomes. But basically violence uh, arises when it is deemed that will be a beneficial strategy in order to promote whatever agenda that is. So if I can take a brief look into some of my research, we do see a lot of the Northwest Company were, you know, use, or use violence quite frequently, particularly in kind of the Athabasca region when, for example, maybe some of their Dene trade partners who had credits, they took credits with them, were going to the HBC fort. So they might, mm. you know, go over there, violently reprimand some of these Dene traders for doing that, and then in an attempt to kind of reinforce their loyalty to repaying first to them instead of the HBC and things like that. That goes to both directions. And I think there's often retaliatory indigenous violence, particularly when traders leave the confines of their forts and they don't have, you know, the same power to resist some of this violence. So that's maybe, you know, that's one thing that stood out for me in the initial scene of the Revenant when the Arikara do kind of make this assault on Hugh Glass's party that, you know, they are in a vulnerable vulnerable position as they're traveling down the river, right? That's a, that's a moment when, you know, the military power is really swung in the favor of, of the Arikara. Right, right. So a little bit more specifically on the, the kinds of violence in the film, we see, a, we see a lot of different kinds of violence. And I'll just warn people that some of this might be hard to like listen to, but you know, we obviously we see the battle at the start of the movie between American traders and the Arikara. We see the U.S. Army essentially destroying entire an entire indigenous village, or more than one actually in the movies, more than one entire village. Uh, we see an indigenous woman raped. We see an indigenous man being lynched by French traders. Could were these parts of the fur trade as well? These sort of other forms of violence. I I have in my research, been shocked at the amount and the different kind of types of violence I've seen, or I've read, I should say. But I guess I'll start with the the lynching of the, the Pawnee man, because I yeah. think that that's maybe one of the most kind of puzzling or the most kind of, um, yeah, puzzling form of violence that, that arose there. And I think generally, right, the violence that I 
see in my as I study the fur trade is that fundamentally you want traders harvesting furs and maybe in this Pawnee version bison robes or, or things like that, right? So lynching one of these traders really does seem to come down to yeah racism. And I do think there is that discourse you do see of you know an anti-indigenous colonial discourse of opposing indigenous people and kind of I don't know complaining about the indigenous presence and things like that. But I think predominantly in the fur trade that that just it doesn't make a lot of historical sense to just remove some of the producers of the furs. So I, I don't I haven't seen kind of that kind of blatant and kind of unprovoked violence or there's no kind of justification for the violence. Right. But the other kind of shocking forms of violence, you know, I think did occur on on certain occasions and maybe weren't super common, but you know, I've seen a few references to in different like secondary works to uh, rape. I haven't come across that specifically, but one thing I've come across, which is, you know, quite shocking in itself, is some Northwest Company traders, you know, forcibly removing Indigenous women from their communities and then using them as collateral to gain debt repayments and sometimes selling them into marriage, I guess, or, you know, a form of marriage with their company employees to keep them happy and things like that. So they become almost commodities in that system. So there's I guess there's all different kinds of violence. And, and if you look at different aspects of the fur trade, you can often find some of these really shocking kind of forms of violence. Wow. I, yeah, I wanted to ask you about the depiction of the role of gender in the fur trade in the movie, which you've just mentioned here. So we see gendered violence in the, the fact that this Arikara woman is taken captive and raped by French fur traders. We also see that Hugh Glass was married to a Pawnee woman and has a mixed race son. So one element of the fur trade was intermarriage, which I think in Canada, that's that's pretty well recognized that, you know, this is sort of the genesis of, I mean, not, not this specific like Hugh Glass and, and the Pawnee, but in general, European and indigenous intermarriage is recognized as the genesis of the Métis people and so forth. So people kind of know about that, I think, historically. But you mentioned the taking capture and, and selling of, of indigenous women, Were there are there any other important ways that gender intersected with the fur trade that we don't really see in the film? Yeah, I think, I, I think for sure. And I think, you know, the women in this, in the film are, are quite, are, are, you know, presented as passive figures for the most part. There's a little bit yeah. where the daughter of the Ricard chief who was captured, you know, she, she's fighting, she's getting away from, from this French or from her French captors, but we don't really get a sense of, the well-documented, you know, by Jennifer Brown, Sylvia Van Kirk, Susan Smith, other historians about kind of the integral role that the women play as cultural intermediaries and guides and interpreters and all these things. So in this position, as often, you know, married uh, à la façon du pays avec, you know, in an indigenous custom with many of these fur traders, they play a really crucial role in facilitating intercultural exchange. We don't get that sense at all, but really that, I mean, the trade aspect of these relationships is not a key portion of, of the film, but mm-hmm. I mean, from this region, even just, you know, the history of uh, Sacagawea and, you know, she as a key interpreter on the Lewis and Clark expedition, a few, you know, in the early 19th century, you know, there's some very prominent examples of women playing that, you know, a really integral role in lots of ways. And we just don't get that in the film. Right, right. That makes sense. So the movie 
as, as we mentioned, offers this very violent depiction of the fur trade. And you mentioned at the start the sort of historical memory of the fur trade in Canada, all the forts we have and, and that sort of thing. And my sense is that that depiction is very, quite different, right? The depiction we get in Canada's popular memory emphasizes, and, and I think growing up in, you know, going to school in Canada, emphasizes some of the themes you mentioned at the start about like mutually beneficial exchange and gifting relationship or like gifting ceremonies and that sort of thing. And the violence is not really talked about very much in school or at these historic sites. Would you agree that this is sort of a, a difference in how the fur trade is represented? And do you think that, do you think that we're getting an accurate representation of the fur trade in our popular memory of it? Right. No, no, I definitely agree with that. I think it's, we get, yeah, maybe a more sanitized version in, in Canada of the fur trade the most. And this is, you know, something that, yeah, I guess my research is trying to, you know, just balance out that narrative a little bit and, and talk about kind of the intersection of some of these, you know, or these different kind of mutually beneficial aspects of the trade, but also the violence that is, is present as well. But mm-hmm. I think, I mean, I think this is a good, The Revenant is a good film to kind of talk about this because I think, you know, often the narrative in, or the popular memory is set up in relation to the American side of the fur trade. And so some of these events that are depicted in the film, the Battle of Little Bighorn a few decade, decades later, we have a perception in Canada where it's often kind of described that we had a, a more peaceful version of expansion westward, which was pushed by the fur trade, but also and you know, and then led into the the numbered treaties. Obviously, this is a very <laughs> basic description of a lot of a long and complex history. But there's kind of that ongoing perception or popular narrative of this this history, where in relation to the states, we didn't have that same that same violence, at least until the 1870s and 1880s with the Métis resistance and such. Right. I think that makes sense. And I've talked about this on previous episodes where. You know, the U.S. has this reputation of fighting wars against indigenous people. In Canada, the perception is that somehow colonialism was gentler. And I think that the positivity with which the fur trade is portrayed in Canada is also a way of talking about the relationships of Canada's three founding peoples, as they're often remembered, the British, the French, and and indigenous peoples. And it's sort of... um, it's almost supposed to be like a metaphor for how we can all like get along today. It feels like, yeah, exactly. And uh, I mean, that's just been the sh- you know the shocking part about my research is how prevalent violence is, but particularly how brutally violent the Northwest Company are right. in lots of in lots of cases. And that happens both, which I think has been a bit more acknowledged between the Hudson's Bay Company and the Northwest Company. So they're really at different points are fighting against each other directly, and it gets quite violent. But also. You know, a lot of violence from the Northwest Company is using against their indigenous, I guess, debtors is the best way to describe them, the, people, the traders that are indebted to the company. Right, right. Speaking of the memory of the fur trade, this movie got some criticism from French Canadians in particular for the portrayal of the French fur traders in the film. The French fur traders are the ones who lynch the Pawnee man. They're the ones who kidnap and, and rape the Arikara woman. 
the the assault of the Arikara woman is actually happening behind their Arikara allies' back. They're they're trading. They have a trade relationship with the Arikara, and they're not very good trade partners. Do you want to talk a little bit about how this was received in French Canada? And also, I, I think there's a a narrative in particular that French Canadians, the the French Empire in North America, was sort of the the friendliest empire toward indigenous people. That's sort of, that's the narrative of it. Do you want to talk a little bit about that narrative? Yeah. And this might be, it might be a good place to do a little plug, but uh, I've written a joint article with my supervisor, Alan Greer, where we've kind of talked about violence and alcohol in the, in the fur trade. Mm -hmm. And so he delves into a bit of that, but you know, from quite early in new France, there is this kind of use of violence and coercion to try to manipulate the behavior uh, of indigenous debtors. So I think that narrative and that, yeah, might slowly be kind of unraveled or at least complicated a little bit. But also at the same time, I think one reason why lots of French Canadian historians and French historians kind of took exception to the depiction of, of the French traders is because there is a certain aspect of that narrative that is true. The French were some of the first to kind of get into this area, at least further west, like around Lake Winnipeg and things like into those areas and, and start building some of these relationships, but also kind of into the 19th century, the voyagers are key intermediaries in this trade in lots of cases. And yeah, there's a book that'll be coming out in the next few months, I think, by Scott Berthelet, who's another mm. USASC grad, who has really charted kind of the key role that these French intermediaries played in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War. Mm. Previously, it was thought that they left kind of the West but he's found that lots of them stayed and most were integrated into these indigenous communities, had indigenous wives, families, or Métis wives and families, and really played some important roles in kind of facilitating some of this exchange. So, you know, this essentialized, violent French depiction of French traders in this, uh, you know, I think really irked many historians for that reason. But also, I think one thing that stood out to me was that these French traders are so ingrained in both the American and, you know, Anglo-Canadian trader trade networks that partitioning all these groups off as like this single group and this single group really doesn't, you know, doesn't really capture the diversity of some of these companies. Right. Like, for example, the, the Chouteau family who were based in St. Louis were integral traders into the Missouri River in the first few decades of the 19th century, and they collaborated with the American fur company. Anyway, that's just something that I think is useful for people to think about is that these groups really aren't, or they're really kind of integrated rather than being really separate completely. Right. That makes sense. And I think we do get some sense, not necessarily with the French, but we get some sense with Hugh Glass's party that it's a pretty diverse mix of people. In you know the Rocky Mountain Fur Company, we've got some sort of Anglo-Americans, John Fitzgerald, I, I've got to assume it's an Irish name. Hugh Glass and his son is his son's mother is Pawnee and so there is a representation of different cultural groups within the same company there. Speaking of Hugh Glass's son, I wanted to talk about the the depiction of indigenous people in the film more specifically. So so obviously we see Glass's son participating in the fur trade. We see other indigenous people such as the Arikara strongly opposing the presence of American fur traders, but also engaging in trade with the French. And I'm curious, what were your thoughts on the film's depiction of 
indigenous people's relationship to and involvement with the fur trade. And I realized that there are so many different indigenous groups that it's hard to hard to comment on that in general. I did think one of the things that I liked about the movie was that we see different indigenous groups of people with different goals rather than just sort of treating them all as a monolith. But, but what were your thoughts? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I guess I, I don't want to go kind of treading back over some of my previous answers too much, but yeah, I guess if you're taking it from a historic standpoint, as I guess we are on this podcast, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I just didn't see the, maybe the diverse and the kind of complex calculus that these groups were applying in, in lots of cases, you know, in the fur trade, because every decision has a lot of implications, whether that's with the other indigenous people in the region or with trade partners or these kind of things. So at times that pursuit of a singular goal, I mean, it makes perfect sense. You'd be worried about your daughter and kind of wanting to, to get or to make sure she was returned safely and all those things. But, you know, you're missing kind of maybe some of that, the complexity in these decisions. One interesting thing, and maybe I'll throw this back to you on your thoughts on this, but so as they approached Fort Kiowa, you had that group, groups of indigenous people outside the fort. Yeah. And, you know, I do think that that is something that we see off or we see often is this group of people living alongside the fort, hunting for the fort. And there's kind of a, a local economy that emerges around some of these forts. They're often kind of around Hudson's Bay, like called the home guard Cree and, and different historians have used that term. So what do you think about that? I like, they look very destitute at the same time in the film they're depicted. I thought as quite destitute, but anyway, I thought that was an, an interesting addition because that's a, an area of this history that, you know, certainly there was that um, practice. Yeah. I, I can't, I mean, this isn't really my historical specialty, so I don't feel like I can comment too much on an expert on, as, as, on this particular depiction. I did think that's a good thing to do from the filmmaker's perspective as a way to demonstrate another type of relationship between indigenous people and, and European colonizers. I think one thing that I did like about this movie was that we sort of, yeah, we get this multifaceted depiction of these relationships. There's intermarriage, there's conflict, there's this sort of tense trade, there's living in close proximity to one another for some people. There's living very separately for other people. So I think that including that was good. I can't really comment on the historical accuracy of the specific portrayal of whether or not they seemed destitute. I don't, I don't really know about that. So I guess a follow-up question about the, the depiction of indigenous people. There is a scene where there's an exchange taking place between the Arikara and the French. And it's very hostile. You know, I was kind of taken aback by this because, you know, my historical memory from Canada and and my impression from other things I've seen is that, you know, there's sort of this like very formal gift exchange. And then I assumed that relationships would be more positive because there's this sort of this established relationship in the film between the French and the Arikara. But the, the scene is very tense because, you know, the Arikara want horses and the French don't want to give up their horses and they seem very angry at each other. Do you think this is a, the vibe of this scene is kind of accurate for, for these trade relationships or do you think it's more this more, more friendly relationship once the trade relations have been established? Yeah, I think, I think I agree with you that I think generally, yeah, I think generally the trade relations, you know, as they're developed, you know, there, there's, it becomes an understanding of, 
and, and you see this in lots, if you read some of the post journals and things like that, there's an understanding of kind of the conventions of exchange, a pretty con or a pretty standard convention of exchange in different regions kind of emerges. And that helps build trust and helps kind of make some of these exchanges, at least from how the European traders are describing them in their post journals, seem pretty formulaic in some cases and pretty, yeah, not, not too tense. But at the same time, there are examples, and I think this is kind of, you know, one of the takeaways or what can be one kind of takeaway from about the history of the fur trade is that there's always a chance for violence to emerge depending on if, if a conflict arises or if there's things that happen. So I have, I certainly have examples where you could say, yeah, things are really tense, particularly if, you know, the European traders or the Northwest Company traders in this case are not happy with the number of furs that were delivered or were harvested over the winter and things like that. So they, I think for the most part, as these relationships are built, they're, they're not as tense as the movie describes or depicts, but I think there are occasions where you could say, I will give you one short example at the risk of continuing to bring you back into the Northwest Company world, but there's a fort is on the Peace River, so Northern Alberta, and this group of DNA traders arrives at the fort and the Northwest Company trader is unhappy with their returns that year and they've got a lot of credits to pay, so he's unhappy. And he goes, lashes out and goes to to hit, to punch, or to slap this Dane leader who grabs his hand and kind of rebuffs him. And then what follows is a series of threats about, you know, the beatings and the, the violence that will occur if they don't come back next time with the trade. You can imagine kind of a similar intensity to the to the scene in, in The Revenant where the whole trade relation at that moment, like violence could break out almost at any moment if someone makes the wrong move. So I guess that's a, a historian's answer where maybe this is not accurate, but also there's a little, there's certainly some uh, occasions where this violence and this intensity kind of comes into these trade trade relations. Over the course of your comments, I think generally I'm getting the impression that like a lot of the things in the film are things that could happen in the fur trade, but not necessarily regularly happened. <laughs> this sort of violence and intensity of the film is, is not an impossible thing to happen in the fur trade, but certainly not the norm. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. And then we're just, yeah, just highlighting that and trying to bring back in that, you know, yeah, it's not, it's not peaceful. It's not as idyllic as, as sometimes it is, it is depicted as as well. So right. somewhere in between the film and maybe the standard Canadian mythology around the fur trade. Right, right. Speaking also of the violence, the film represents, or the film shows a kind of a very friendly relationship between the American fur traders and the United States military forces. Can you comment on the history behind this? Was, was this a sort of a, a typical pairing? Yeah, it's a good question. This is something that, you know, I only have maybe snippets uh, from secondary sources that, that have, or that are kind of informing my comments, but hmm. it seems that, you know, in the Missouri Valley that, and this is, you know, uh, Jay Gitlin, who wrote a, a great book about the role of the of French in kind of St. Louis and, and in the Mississippi Valley and helping facilitate European or American expansion westward. But he kind of describes this era as soldiers and traders kind of moving out in tandem and acting as the key intermediaries between the, the indigenous groups further west or west of the Mississippi and the American government. So it does seem that they're more 
yeah, like there, there is quite a bit of integration between the traders and uh, the U.S. Army. Mm. But, and, and you know, this, and this actually comes, if we go to the kind of a, the history of this story that is depicted, that is dramatized in this movie. So in the aftermath of the Arikara attack, Colonel, Colonel, I should say, uh, Leavenworth with the U.S. Army kind of brings a party out to retaliate against the Arikara and ends up, because the Arikara were semi-sedentary, I guess, or quite, relatively sedentary, but they had kind of adopted some equestrian aspects to their lifestyle, but they were, you know, they could attack them in their villages. Uh, Leavenworth arrives with his party, which is a mix of fur traders, soldiers, about 200 or so, and a few hundred Sioux warriors as well, attacks the Arikara and burns their villages and kind of forces them out of them. So I think even in the aftermath of the events this film is depicting, that yeah, there was some kind of collaboration between these groups. We've been talking a lot about how the fur trade is remembered in Canada because it's such an important piece of, of Canadian historical memory. I think le less so in the United States. But the film is set in the United States. And so I'm curious how the film would look different if it were set in Canada instead of the United States or perhaps a, a different region of North America, right? Maybe in like, you know, Quebec instead of the Rocky Mountains or something. How might the fur trade and its political dynamics look different? You know, one thing that struck me about the movie was that the movie sort of suggests that the border is not as important as I think maybe modern viewers might expect because there are French traders that are in the modern day United States. And when I saw that, I was like, at first I was like, why, why are they here? But then I'm like, oh, right, I guess the border is very porous in this period. So in some sense, I think that that goes to show that perhaps in some ways the differences are not as significant as we might expect. But yeah, what are your thoughts on, on the geography theme? Right. Yeah, I think, well, I think one thing is that the movie is shot in, Al in Alberta, in the Rockies of Alberta. So I was proud yeah. of myself when we were watching it. My girlfriend and I were watching it. And I was like, I bet this is Ken and Askus. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it is. Um, when really this, these events are, some of the events certainly took place on the plains too. So, but you want those epic mountain scenes. But no, I think you're, you're right to highlight the porous nature of the border at this time. And, and you know, these French that are included in the movie, we don't know where they're coming from. Like they could be coming from St. Louis, but they could be independent traders that are moving across the, what is now the, the border. But there's certainly nothing enforcing the border out west at this point. Mm -hmm. And both indigenous and European traders move across seamlessly and, and quite frequently although that that area between kind of the Missouri River and the Suarez River some of these rivers kind of in southern Manitoba and southern Saskatchewan I guess was very very violent and very kind of dangerous so lots of people were worried to make that that trek but some traders did try it so all I have to say is that I don't yeah like if you moved it say a couple hundred or 300 kilometers north these events, you know, I don't think it looks that different. It might be, you know, you don't, you're maybe not contending as directly with the U.S. Army forces in the aftermath of some of these events or these kind of things. Yeah. And I think that's maybe the big difference as you look over the, how the fur trade kind of unfolds over the next few decades after 1820. I think a, a, an American presence, both settlers and army presence is 
more rapid to enter some of those areas. So, you know, that, that changed it a bit, that, that presence of some form of government authority, whereas further north in Canada, it's pretty much non-existent until, I guess, the 1870s, right. the Northwest Mounted Police. So it's really on, uh, you know, in Canada, or at least immediately north of these areas in Canada, the onus is on the European fur traders to try to enforce some of these or their legal systems or to enforce compliance with their credit systems or these kind of things. Right. But the, but the British traders in Canada are not doing anything significantly different than the American traders. No, I don't. I don't think so. And and you know, as we you know, as we say, in in all these situations, you have to balance violence with performances of generosity and building relationships and all those things. And I think those themes are pretty consistent in this moment across at least these areas of the West where there isn't a significant European or American presence. Similar question, but about time period. We've already talked a little bit about how. You know, this movie is set in the 1820s, and that's a really specific moment of violence. We also talked about how, as you mentioned, relationships change as settler society becomes closer and closer to where these trade relationships are happening, and they bring colonial military or legal enforcement systems with them. So those are ways that the fur trade changes over time. But I'm curious if you have any other thoughts on this, because the fur trade spanned hundreds of years. In what ways might this movie look different if it were set, you know, 100 years before or, or something like that? What are some ways that the, the time period is relevant here? And I mean this in the sense of, you know, the relationships, not necessarily in like costumes and stuff. Right. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. It's I'm not exactly sure I have a, uh, I have a great answer, but I'll, I'll, give it, <laughs> I'll give it a little or something. One thing that's, that struck me, I think you get a bit of a sense of kind of the smallpox epidemics in the yeah. film, like in that initial burning scene, I think there's a little bit of an implicit when the Pawnee village is burned. I think there's maybe some kind of little shots of smallpox on people and things like that. There's at least one character that has clearly had smallpox, yeah. Yeah, but that's one thing I was kind of thinking if you did change the time, you know, because certainly as smallpox and other diseases make their way across the continent, I think that would, that would significantly change the, you know, the, the, or the, that would decrease the indigenous populations and perhaps change the, yeah, change kind of the dynamics of exchange and particularly who could assert power and who could utilize violence and how that works. And, and as I'm saying that in some ways that kind of gets into, we don't want to get too historiographical, but gets into kind of the debate about, different theories about how this trade unfolds, whether it's the middle ground or Kathleen's all the native ground and kind of, it would just, depending on the region you're in, based on the time period, there would be different dynamics that kind of influence who has power to kind of dictate the nature of exchange. Sure. You could talk about, you could talk about this historiographical debate if you want. That's, I feel like, <laughs> I feel like the listeners can handle it. Well, I, I don't want to go too deep into it, but in this area, so yeah, Richard White is talking more about in the Great Lakes and just south of the Great Lakes, how because kind of the aftermath of some of these epidemics in the 17th and 18th century and, and the, the shattering of certain communities and how they move into different areas, that there's no one group that can dominate the region militarily. Right. So that kind of defines the whole 
how trade and that and that kind of forces both European traders, French traders coming to the area, and the indigenous groups into compromise and kind of finding a middle ground between their their customs and their economies and their desires and those kind of things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas in other areas, uh, historians have noted, or Kathleen Duvall looked a bit further south uh, along the Sabian Arkansas River, and said that the Quapaw and other indigenous groups actually dominated that region more, so they could dictate the nature of these exchange relations, and then many people have picked up on and commented on the, this middle ground framework yeah. over time. So we don't have to get too far into it, but just that all that to say is that if we look over time, the dynamics of who kind of has population supremacy, maybe who has, and then as a result, military supremacy, and who can then use that force or lack of force to, or how that force or lack of force influences how people approach fur trade relations might change greatly over time. Yeah, I know that Richard White is the, you know, the Richard White's The Middle Ground is sort of the classic work, and then there have been more recent works sort of challenging it. But I know that this is such a classic work that so many books now misuse the phrase The Middle Ground. They'll just call things middle grounds, and it's very frustrating to, uh, to some fur trade historians <laughs> or historians of indigenous European relations. Anyway, that's sort of aside from the main point. I always ask my guests this question from the perspective of a historian, not necessarily just as a viewer, but from, in, from its depiction of history, what was your favorite thing about The Revenant? And the flip side, if you were the director of the film and you were empowered to change one thing about its depiction of history, what would you like to change and why? Oh, the one, one thing that's very <laughs> difficult. <laughs> no, I think that one thing I really liked was just the depict, like the depiction of, you know, all the costuming, all the sets, all those kind of things. I was reading uh, Gilles Lavard's take on the movie where, and he's a, you know, a French historian and, but he fits into this middle ground historiography, but we won't go more into that. He uh, had a direct kind of comment on that work and which is also very influential and, and very useful. But anyway, he was providing a bit of a description of how how much work the movie producers and, and everyone, the set design and everything, went into seeking out archaeologists, historians, mm. artifacts, these kind of things to represent accurately, you know, all the different clothing, but also the the boats we see, the fort, all these different things. And I, before reading that, I kind of was already thinking that. I was like, well, I thought that was really impressive how all those things were, were depicted. Mm-hmm. And... One thing to change, I don't know, I guess I was, as a fur trade historian, was yearning just for a bit more about, yeah, the intersection of these different different groups and just, I wanted to, I would have loved to see more of the peaceful and the, the part, process of trade that was going on rather than just kind of the focus on violence, but that's not what the movie was about at all, so I can't fault them <laughs> yeah, <laughs> too yeah, much yeah. for to doing that. But that's just my own, <laughs> because I'm so ingrained in that world, I would have loved to to see at least like even a scene where they're depicting kind of a, a peaceful exchange and the rituals of that. Yeah, it sort of feels like a movie where, where things go bad, but it doesn't give you a sense of what things are like when things don't go bad. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> so, so that makes sense to me. Yeah, it almost feels like also a lot of that history is sort of happening in the background, because the main plot is this Hugh Glass, John Fitzgerald revenge story. And so I think it could have been interesting to have that a little bit more, more foregrounded in the plot. But I thought it was a, you know, it's a, a well-made movie. I think that there is a lot of attention to historical detail. 
Although I did see online one of the, um, there's like a voiceover scene where it's Hugh Glass's wife speaking to him in his mind. And she's supposed to be Pawnee, but the, the voiceover is a language from Alaska. So that was a little goofy. But for the most part, I think they've done a good job of paying attention to those types of details. Is there anything else you wanted to mention about the film or the fur trade that we didn't already get to talk about? I don't know. I don't think too much. I think we've covered a lot of good ground. I guess one interesting aspect of the, of the movie that we didn't really touch on, but is this equestrianism does play a really important role in the film. Like yeah. people on horses are the most powerful and, you know, the initial scene, the initial Arikara attack is lots of them on horseback kind of chasing down the traders. And that's, um, mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting aspect of this period in history in this area. Like the access to horses was so integral and there's lots of good or interesting studies about the level of adoption of equestrian culture and the Arikara and Pawnee both fall into kind of, they kept some of their sedentary kind of agricultural aspects of life ways despite kind of adopting parts of their year or parts of their life life uh ways you know with equestrianism so yeah, yeah if people are interested that's something to look into because i think it's kind of a fascinating history of how those horses move, move their way up the great plains during the 18th century and kind of mix the vital importance of horses along with guns and kind of shifting power in this in these regions yeah that's a really good point i hadn't really thought about the horses but that is a really important theme in the movie where as well, the Arikara want horses from the French traders. The French traders don't want to give them up. This might not be obvious to some people, so I'll mention it, but horses were not indigenous to North America. And so a lot of indigenous people historically did not have an equestrian culture, a horse, horse riding culture, and then came to adopt one. And so, so this is a really important piece of, especially in the the sort of uh, just east of the Rocky Mountains, right? The, the Great Plains. This is a really important historical theme. And there's a lot of interesting work on that if, if you're interested in that topic. So yeah, that's a really good point. And I guess that would have been, uh, <laughs> anyway, that might have been more, ev- it might be more evident in the film if it wasn't set in the Rockies, like if it was yeah. set on the, the plains, because you just get the importance of that when you're covering long distances that aren't forested and people can do that efficiently and, and all those things. But yeah, anyway, lots of good stuff on that if people are interested. Sam, this has been really interesting. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me about The Revenant. Do you have any social media pages or, or projects that you'd like to share with the listeners? Uh, not much for, for social media at the moment, but I'll just say keep an eye out for this edited collection coming out. If you want to read a bit more about kind of violence in the, in the fur trade, and it'll be coming out with McGill Queen's Press, hopefully sometime in the summer, maybe a bit later. And the collection, I think, is titled Before Canada, Northern North America in a Connected World. But other than that... Not much else. (laughs) Awesome. Well, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thanks for having me, Lewis. That's all for today's interview. Thank you for listening, and a big thanks to Sam for joining me. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed on today's episode, I've included a couple of reading recommendations in the show's description, so check those out. And if you'd like to see some images and photos of the fur trade, check out our Facebook and Instagram pages. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with someone you know that you think would like it. For a podcast of this size, sharing it with someone you know really makes a big difference to growing the audience. If you'd like to leave a review for the show, that's also a huge help. I'd love to hear what you thought of the episode, so please leave a comment on one of our social media pages or feel free to send me an email at offcampushistory at gmail.com. I'd also love to hear your suggestions for future topics. Music for the podcast is by Paul B.S. and his Novelty Orchestra, and artwork for the podcast was made by Nethkaria. 
Thank you again for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time for some more off-campus history. <laughs>